Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice and coming to you live from Teen Author Bootcamp. Our introduction question this week is, what rom-com character are you? So my name's Aaliyah, and if I was a rom-com character, I would definitely be the main character, except it wouldn't be a romantic comedy, it would be a romantic tragedy, so I'd be the rom-trad main character. (laughs) I'm Caitlin. I wrote the Last Star Burning series, and if I were a rom-com character, I would be like the annoying and like trash fire best friend who's just completely messed up. <laughs> I'm Kristen. I'm an acquisitions editor at Deseret Book, and Caitlin kind of stole mine, except I wouldn't be the trash fire best friend. I would be the really smart one that tells the main character that they need to date a new person and constantly is giving like that advice, but not following any of it in my own life. <laughs> I'm Cameron, and I'm also best friend, but I'm the best friend who gives all the wrong advice when asked. <laughs> this is so funny. I was... <laughs> um, yeah, I always felt like the best friend, you know, in Pretty in Pink, that um, is just, like, mouthy and just being like, you just you just need to deal with this, girl. Um, but I also feel a little bit like Catherine Moreland in Northanger Abbey, which is, like, an insane imagination, and I'm, like, inventing a, a story that's not actually happening. I'm like, I'm in a ghost story! And everyone's like, it's a, it's a rom-com. I'm like, there is murder! And they're like, no, it's, you're just falling in love with this cute person, right? No, there are ghosts! I feel like that's my vibe. Oh, good stuff, good stuff. So a big welcome to our guest author today, Amina May Safi author of This Is All Your Fault, Tell Me How You Really Feel, and Not the Girls You're Looking For. Amina, could you take a minute to tell us about your books? Sure, thank you so much. Tell Me How You Really Feel is my enemies to lovers rom-com featuring two girls on the opposite sides of the social scale as they work very hard to make a movie and try not to fall in love. Spoiler from the cover, they fall in love. Um, Not the Girls You're Looking For is my ode to mean girls, messy friendships, and bad decisions. And it follows Lulu Saad in her junior year at her Texas prep school as um, she makes a mess of her love life, her friendships, and her family during the holy month of Ramadan. And This Is All Your Fault is um, coming out in October, and it is three girls trying to save their dying Chicagoland indie and basically... It's kind of like a friendship rom-com where they think they all know each other. And then over the course of the day of working together to save the indie, they realize that they there's a lot they missed under the surface. So it's like that beginning of a girl gang, which is also one of my favorite things. So today we are thrilled to be talking about all things rom-com. And you can see we have an expert with us. So Amina, you pitched the idea that characters really make a rom-com. Can you take a second to tell us what you mean? I think that characters make a rom-com on a lot of levels. I think you have the main characters falling in love and they're two people you usually want to root for. And I think the more specific they are and the more you've dialed them in, the more you want to root for those two people falling in love. And I think that um, that's integral to the rom-com. And then I think the, the background characters are also really important, right? Like the best friends, like everyone said that they were one of the best friends in this very specific but different way. And I think that that's telling because it's like the the people you're friends with also tell you something about you and it tells you something about the story. Like, I don't think Notting Hill would work so well if you didn't have like all of those five different zany people in the background, like driving the car, getting him there, the weird roommate that's never wearing pants, right? Like all of that (laughs) makes the world and it, and it allows for comedy and allows for that space. And so I think that characters are essential in that you want two people you're rooting for to fall in love. And also characters are essential in that, 
they make up the fabric of our world and they make the world interesting and, and funny and vibrant, even when we're not watching two people fall in love on screen. So um, how do you approach writing characters like that? Especially since all of us identified like a pretty specific dynamic. How do you, how do you write those characters without them sounding the same as all of the other characters? Like the little, I mean, you have the trash fire best friend. How do you write somebody who's, <laughs> who's just not that character? <laughs> the same one over and over and over again. You're like, how does Judy Greer have a career that is so varied and then yet also <laughs> always in this lane? Um, I, <laughs> I think it's important. I like to start with archetypes and tropes. Um, I find it really helpful because it gives me like parameters and it gives me a bucket to play in. And I think it's, it gives me limits and I do really well with like, here's the limits of this character. And then I start dialing it in. So when I was writing Sana, it was, um, I was thinking about her as like, okay, she's the jock and I wanted a rom-com with a jock and a nerd. And then she's the jock, but I wanted her to be a jock and a cheerleader. And I wanted to play with the idea of like what athleticism is and what that means for gender. And she's femme and she's also athletic and muscular. And then she's also like a straight A student. And I just start dialing in all of these like, buttons and like I always just think of it as like dials and they become more and more specific and the person gets funneled down and eventually you have someone that I think is really specific um and really different from say another person who is a a cheerleader and a different type of femme or you know Rachel is a filmmaker and so she's really into film nerd stuff but she's also interested in very specific kinds of films and very specific kinds of stories and I think that the more I like to start broad and then funnel in. And I think doing that always helps me get a sense of the person and get a sense of the person and the way that they present themselves outwardly. And then the way that they have that sense of interiority and the way they think of themselves internally. Um, and it gives you that to play with. I think that's so true. I mean, it's true for any character you write, because if you're dealing with tropes and archetypes, if you just rely on the trope or the archetype to, to put a character forward, then it feels like they're made of cardboard and they're hollow and you need all those extra details and like that study and thought to make it into a real person who seems like somebody you actually want to read about. How is that different for your main characters? Like how do you get people to root for those, those main characters to get together? That's a really interesting question. I think for me with the main characters and the reason why I like to root for them is I like to watch a meeting of the minds like ultimately for me two people falling in love is two people who see each other as they are and then also like push each other to be the best versions of themselves so it's like the person you show the ugly side to but also the person that sees your best self inside of you even seeing that ugly side and you don't have to hide that and so for me that's always like dialogue and banter and I like watching people flirt with their words and I like watching people try to outsmart one another and I like watching people um like play that kind of intellectual game where they're sort of trying to one-up each other but they're also learning about each other I find that satisfying as a writer and as a reader and as a watcher of rom-coms um but I think some people do it with body language and looks and some people and not like just how you look but like you know eye contact, hand touching, right? Like there's all of these different ways to essentially show two people communicating. Um, and I think maybe that's it. It's like learning to see the ways those two people communicate with one another and what that means for their love story that I think allows people to root for them and what they're saying on one level. And then like what the subtext is that you as the reader or the watcher can kind of glean from all of these other 
bits of info you're getting. I agree with that. I think one of my favorite parts of rom-coms is when those two different conversations are are conflicting, when, you know, the main characters are saying, you know, Lizzie and Darcy style, oh, I hate him, but their body language, the way they're turning or the way they're touching is telling something totally different. That that creates such a wonderful chemistry, wonderful conflict. Yeah, I think Lizzie and Darcy is so fun because they do see the same thing so differently. And I think it's also really fun because Lizzie is like, I hate him. And it's like, yeah, but also like you notice every time he comes into a room, same as he notices every time you're right. Like like you're paying attention to him. And I think that's why hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is right. So like hate is always and I love enemies to lovers, but like that's why it's so interesting. It's like you're giving this person a lot of free real estate in your head, regardless of how you feel about them, Um, which I love. (laughs) So. Um, when it comes to rom-coms, I feel like a lot of times there's something pretty fantastical about them where like in To All the Boys I Love Before, right, the sister sends out the the love letters. When you're approaching rom-coms, how do you balance the fantastical with like the realistic to make a story that's maybe not necessarily like super realistic, but believable and and have it so the readers are just willing to suspend all disbelief? I don't know that all readers can dis- suspend all disbelief. I think some people have a harder time with that than others. And I think that's totally fair. Um, I think that the fantastical is what makes the rom-com. And I think it has to have those elements that feel like magic in order for it to feel true. And so that's what I always try is like, I I think the fantastical is part of the vehicle for the rom-com. So I don't want to ignore it. And I also think you have to say things that are true to that character. So maybe your sister would never send your love letters and like violate sister code in that way. But like making sure that, again, going back to character, like Kitty feels like a true character and it is true to what she would do that she would do this kind of zany thing to her sister out of like this sense of adventure and pure love, right? Because we get, even if we think that's never happened in our lives, we get why she did that. And I think that's so much of it is making sure that it feels true to those characters and true to the situation you have set up. Um, Because yeah, maybe none of us would try to go find the love of our lives on the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day, right? Like that seems kind of bananas, but also like, we've been with through Meg Ryan the whole time in sleepless in Seattle. And we believe that she's in this state where she's just willing to take a leap of faith. And that feels good and true and rooted in something that like we believe in as, as a a culture or as people that like, we want to root for that love, even if it's extremely over the top in that moment. I feel like the bananas part, like you said, is, is part of the appeal because I feel like characters who do stuff like that do things that we wish we were brave enough to do. I love that. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so this question is probably going to reveal how far outside my lane <laughs> rom-coms are normally. But is do do plot threads that don't have something to do exclusively with either romance or comedy, do those have a place in a rom-com or are writers better off sticking as close to those those two points as possible? I think they are integral, actually. And I was I just taught the class on the rom-com and I'm going to do it again after this. But I think that it's integral to go on these journeys of self-discovery. I think it's integral to be learning about yourself while you're falling in love. And I think that so many good rom-coms, I think, are about learning these truths inside of ourselves while the romance is also going on. Um, So when I did it in Tell Me How You Really Feel, Sana is 
um, applying for this fellowship and she doesn't want to go to college right away and essentially wants to take a gap year. And Rachel really wants to be a filmmaker and she is trying to figure out how to take that next step to become a professional. And I think that those enrich the char- those lines enrich the characters and make them feel real and make them feel like they have this life outside of romance. And I think, and maybe this is just like a personal moral belief that like we should have lives outside of our romantic lives and that bringing our whole selves to that romantic life makes the romance better in that way. So I think that having those other plot lines, I think is really important, um, even though it might not feel like the same driver of the plot, the way the romance is um, much in the way that like an adventure story, right? Like you have to go on an adventure and go on a quest and go out and like have these other things happening, but self-discovery is also happening and romance could be happening and revenge could be happening, right? Like there's all these other lines you can still incorporate even while the overarching plot is in rom-coms, essentially just two people falling in love. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. It seems romance is extremely character driven. And so the more character you have, the better the romance is going to be. And you know, it's like hearing the love story of your best friend versus someone on the internet. You may get chills about someone on the internet's love story, but you're going to really freak out about your best friend's love story because you care about them so much. So when you're reading a rom-com, if you care about the character, you're going to care way more about them falling in love than, than anyone else. And you're going to know why that other person is the right person for them, right? Like you're, you're not just rooting for that person to fall in love, but you're rooting for that person to find a match and find their partner and find their person and they're, they're equal in some respect. And like, that's deeply satisfying, right? Like if, if it's romantic love or it's friendship love, finding that person that gets you and accepts you as you are and then sees you and wants you to be you is just, I think that that's just like appealing on a human level. How do you actually get to that point? Because romance, I don't write A stories that are romance usually. It's usually the B or the C story, but it's usually in my books. But how do you, when the romance is the A story, get a character from like, we don't know each other or even we're best friends or we're enemies to I accept you as you are? Because I feel like that's one of the biggest suspensions of disbelief that needs to happen because I feel like most people are pretty cynical about other people. Yeah, I think they can be cynical about other people. Sometimes that cynicism is the thing you're kind of overcoming. Rachel does that and tell me how you really feel where she's like, I know who you are. You're pretty, you're popular, you're a cheerleader. Like I can just slot you into this category and I can decide who you are. And then I had to kind of force them to interact. Like I made it so that they have to work on this project together that they wouldn't otherwise work on together. So like, you kind of, as the author, I don't control the characters, but I can control the situations in which I can throw them together when I'm thinking about building characters. So I feel like I can keep throwing them together and keep putting them in situations where they learn about each other and they start to see more than one identity marker or more than one side of the person. And I think that's how you often fall in love in real life too. I think that's a true thing where you learn and some people do fall in instant love, but I like that like slow lingering where you like you learn about the person and then you learn some you learn about their family and then you meet their mom and then you hear about their sister and then you go hang out with their best friend and then you see them in all of these different contexts and you see them, you know, being really good at their job, say like making a film and you start to see a bigger picture than like whatever the narrow scope was you had at first. And I just think that like those are the majority of the scenes you write when it's an A plot versus like when it's a B plot you have to be much more concise and it is more like a short story where you don't get as much page time to do it in. So when you're writing yours, do you approach it like with a beat sheet or are you more of like a pantser? I guess how much do you plan ahead of time and how much do you discover as you write? 
That's a great question. I do both. I've learned that creating an outline helps me uh, be able to go faster and to do the kind of book a year schedule that I have been on. But I would also say that leaving room for discovery is really important. And I would also say that um, I like book maps. I like beat sheets. I like thinking of an outline. Um, it was actually Emily Wiberly and Austin Sigmund Broca talked about this on another podcast interview um, about how they think of their outline as a really short draft. And that really helps me think of an outline as not this like static thing I have to follow, but like a short way for me to tell myself the story the first time. And then I can go into that first draft and like tell myself the story in a little bit of a longer form and let it move and become a little more organic while also kind of knowing where I want to go. So it is kind of like a road trip where it's like, I know I want to go from LA to New York, but I didn't realize I would stop in Duluth and Louisiana at this sometime along the way. Right? You're like, I didn't know I'd end up in New Orleans. This is interesting. <laughs> so we've spent a little bit of time talking about the romance side of a rom-com. So maybe we can take a uh, turn the conversation and talk about the other half, the comedy. From someone who struggles with this, how can we make our writing the jokes we make and make them actually funny to other people? <laughs> how do you <laughs> infuse your rom-com with comedy, in other words? What what do you struggle with? I mean, like, I love this question, but I also just want to know, like, what it... Because, like, I tell jokes that I find funny, like, straight up. Like, I tell myself jokes, and then someone tells me if they aren't. Like, I just, like, see where other people <laughs> laugh versus not, right? Like, I think ultimately you're your first audience, and you should tell jokes that you yourself find funny. So that's one part of it. I would also say comedy is often in the surprise. So it's, like, it's often in the thing you're not expecting to happen. So comedy often involves, like, you do this really long setup, and then you do a twist. I'm trying to think of, like, a good example so it's like um I'm actually gonna think about Notting Hill right like you see the roommate and he keeps trying on t-shirts and they're cheesier and cheesier and cheesier and they're weird and then he finally gets one that just says like you are the most beautiful woman in the world and you're like oh my he finally got it he got there we got him there this is so good and then he turns around and it's deeply crass and offensive right but you don't see it until after like the main character said like you're great we finally got there excellent and then he turns around and he's like oh my god <laughs> this is a nightmare so I think that like the turn is really important and like setting up the joke to have that turn is important it's like the hyperdrive not working on the millennium vulcan over and over again is one way to do it too or the guy that comes in the travel book shop and is always asking for a non-travel book and is just like irritating the person and that's funny to an outsider but yeah tell, tell jokes you enjoy like if you enjoy puns and dad jokes like put puns and dad jokes and enjoy them like don't I think don't shy away from the kinds of humor that you excel at just because your humor isn't the same as someone else's doesn't mean it's not going to be funny when you put it on the page. Another a follow-up question there. Like you said, I feel like timing on stuff like that is so important. Are there any resources or like ways that you learned to, to make your timing really work on, on the jokes? I think editing is actually really important with that is often you tell a joke that's longer than it needs to be. And the good thing about being a writer is that you can then just like, and delete it out and nobody <laughs> notices. So like getting a sense of that rhythm, I think is important. I think, you know, just reading a lot of stuff that is funny, even if it's not your thing, like all of the um, Percy Jackson books have like tons of fart jokes, essentially, which I don't tend to tell, but like, they're really well done. They're like really good fart jokes. So I think just like <laughs> studying other people's comedy and realizing why it works and why it might be funny for other people might also help. So like, 
finding those things that are comedic and, and thinking about why they're funny and thinking about the timing of them, even if it's not a way you would tell a joke, could also be a way to like pull back and, and learn from them. So um, I have one more question for you that I feel like is an interesting one for, for this particular genre. How do you balance emotional authenticity with humor in a rom-com? Do you feel like they feed into each other or do you feel like they're opposed or, or like how do you put things into your book in a way that allows them to be really funny in some parts, but also really emotionally authentic in others? I think I do see them as intertwined. I think that like humor is a coping mechanism that I have. So for me, it's very much like I laugh to keep from crying when things are, are hard. Yeah, no, I know it's like, it's sad, but like, I think that's also like, to me, sometimes the saddest thing is the funniest thing. Like I, I see that edge. So it's like my dad is an immigrant from Iraq, okay? And he is like classic dad, like represses all of his feelings. And so like if he is surprised about something, it takes him like three days to tell you that and be excited about it, right? It's And that's so funny, right? Because you like, you're like, I got an A and he's like, congratulations like just the one and then like later he's like yeah and you're laughing because like that's that's really funny but it's also for this like deeply sad reason which is that like he grew up under a dictatorship and like emotions are dangerous in like under a fascist government and you can't ever show them so like I think about those things with people where it's like usually the saddest thing is often also the funny thing and like finding that line where you're celebrating who that person is and coming from that place. I don't like to laugh at people very much. So I think like, for me, that's coming from a place of love. And for me, that's coming from this place of like, he's behaving in this stereotypical dad way, but it's also very specific to him. And it's for this sad reason. But I also find it funny because like, I'm now dealing with the emotional repercussions of like, his growing up. So I think that like, all of that coming into play and and giving it that depth is what's funny to me. Something the we want to move on to the next portion of the podcast. Sorry, Aaliyah, I'm just jumping right in here. So the next thing we're going to do is we're going to critique one of the chapters that were submitted to us. It's blind. We don't know who it belongs to. We just critique the work. And if you want to see the entire text of this submission, we're going to post it on our website. You can Google us, Lit Service Podcast, or you can look it up. It's litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash slash Lit Nation. It really is easy to Google it. I promise. And if you'd like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there and you'll also see who upcoming guests on the podcast will be. So a summary of this episode or this thing, I really am taking your job, Aaliyah. I'm sorry. You're Do you want to give the... You're doing <laughs> you great. Go right <laughs> uh, After talking to her boyfriend into spending a day as Mr. Darcy, aspiring screenwriter Emmy must deal with the consequences. So what are some things we like? And we want... Um, Amina, we want you to tell us what you liked the most first. Um, I loved the voice. And I, I thought that Emmy had a really strong voice. And there was a really, I think there was a strong sense of comedy and a strong sense of fun and a strong sense of like, I know who she is. I know what she's going through. Like, I think that that's, that's really fun. I love that it opened with a script. I think that that was, that was a fun way to like, show and not tell in terms of like she's thinking of her life like a movie and so she opens in her head like a movie and like again that got me into her head that got me into who she is um I love any kind of like pride and prejudice reference I think most good rom-coms have that like sense of meta awareness too where they're like invoking Sleepless in Seattle does that right where it's like it's invoking an affair to remember while also being a rom-com itself and so you kind of get to play between the two which is always to me really satisfying and I, I got the sense that we were building towards something which I think is is often hard to do in those first pages that like we are pushing towards an inevitability and I didn't know what it was 
I, I think there's a really great moment of humor in this where Emmy has just gotten a letter from her boyfriend and she like tries to sigh in perfect contentment but ends up tripping over the sidewalk, um, which I just think summed up kind of what's going on in this in this submission perfectly because she's so caught up in how perfect she wants her relationship to be that her real issues keep catching her by surprise. So I thought it was very funny, but it was also emotionally authentic, like Amina was saying earlier. Um, something I also liked, and I think Amina highlighted this as well, there's a line that says, but if this is the end of the movie, what happens next? And this idea of her seeing her movie, her life as a movie and not knowing what's supposed to happen next because she already got the boy, I love that as a conflict because it seems like a, a very different conflict for a rom-com. Maybe I'm wrong and I don't read enough of them. I actually really like them. I think they're fun. So I've read a fair number of them, but I don't know if this is a typical trope. It seems like it's a new thing to have happen, to have somebody be like, actually, maybe this would be more exciting if you pretended to be this this character that from a book that I love. Like This seems both very sketchy and very fun, and I'm really interested to see what happens. What are some things that maybe could use a second look? I mean, we want to let you go first, too, because you're the authority here. Oh, I'm the authority. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I love being in charge. The, the thing that strikes that struck me the most is I do love that line. I love that central question. And I agree, Caitlin. Like, it's not something you get in a lot of rom-coms, which is like, I've fallen in love. I have the perfect boy. What next? What comes next? For me, the the thing that struck me was that there seemed to be a few problems like this. It's the idea of like, what comes next? And like how, but then there's also this idea of there's a misunderstanding between Emmy and Evan. And it also seems like, is it really that what comes next? Or is it, what is this central, what happens when the central romance is built on what could be a lie, essentially? And like, there's this like fatal flaw. So it's like, is it that there's a misunderstanding and there's a fatal flaw? Is it that what comes next? Is it that we are trying to figure out the difference between real life in the movies and real romance versus the romance in storybooks? All of that is in there. It just feels like, especially in the first chapter, you want it to be really clear to the reader, like that there's this one kind of core theme that you're operating off of. And it felt like there were several. I think I noticed this in a couple of people's notes too, where it was that the ending felt really blindsiding and it felt like Emmy was like suddenly very mad where she hadn't seemed like she had built towards that anger. And so I think being in her perspective for that and understanding if she's going to get mad at the end of that chapter, understanding why she's built to that place and feeling, seeing more of those fault lines in the relationship from the beginning or like what Kristen pointed out, the like the trip moments, the moments where she wants to sigh, but she's tripping. I think there needs to be more of those if that's what you want to explore or if what you want to explore is what comes next, then I think maybe your twist is a little bit different. I'd agree with that. On our podcast, we talk a lot about the promises that a book makes in its first chapter. And while I was reading this, I sort of felt like I wasn't sure which promises were being made, which as a writer, you're always wanting to keep your readers trust so that they'll put up with maybe some of your more far-fetched stuff. And if you haven't quite figured out what promises you're making, it makes it really hard for a reader to stay with it. I, I had that same question as I was reading. And actually, I can identify in quick succession where I thought each of these things at the beginning, I did think it was the what comes next, I've gotten my perfect ending. And, and then how do you continue a relationship? And then there's like a marked a new section where she sees this new boy and she's like, Ooh, he's so cute. And I'm like, Oh, love triangle. 
Okay, mm-hmm. is that what we're doing now? And then there was a marked other one where she gets into a fight in the hall with her boyfriend where he's like, essentially, I moved to this school that I hate for you. And I'm like, wait, which, which, which one is it? <laughs> which one of these plots are we going for? Yeah, but, it's the, yeah. there are three central problems and you have to prioritize one. It's not that you can't bring them in, but like the first one has to be, you know, in Pride and Prejudice, the, the, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a fortune must be in one of a wife. So like, that's our, our first problem is a rich guy moves into the neighborhood and somebody's got a claim on him and who gets him? <laughs> <laughs> and like, we explore so many other things, right? Like it's Pride and Prejudice is such a rich, rich and textural novel but like that's the first beat that's the first thing we get and that's where we that chapter is solely focused on that and we get it from that moment on i think i find myself agreeing because we do get we do get these different hints of things that may be about to go wrong i feel like at least my opinion i really want to know on the first page what it is our hero wants and why they can't have it and by the 10th page we have a few different things that she maybe wants that she maybe can't have and i think it could be it could stand to be more driving if there was a more clearly defined, oh, this is a problem. I think that all of these problems could be great, like, escalation in a novel too, though. So, like, you choose what you want in your book, but, like, what what you really want is, like, to start at baseline zero and then to add on top of it until everybody breaks, you know? So, you've got lots of great framework here. Yeah, I would say they're all really well done. I would say that it's almost like a victim of it's like setting up three really clear problems, one right after another. They're like, wait, which one is it? I had a note on um, Emmy's character. So there's a lot of really fun stuff going on now. We know she wants to be a screenwriter. We kind of know a little bit about her parents and her best friend. Um, And I could definitely get a sense of kind of, she has this flair for drama. You know, she has this list she's made out for her boyfriend and all these guilty crushes. So that's really fun. For me though, it seemed like probably, you know, 95% of her thoughts were about her boyfriend and about how much she loves him. And so it's really clear that she thinks very highly of her boyfriend, but because all of her thoughts and kind of all of her actions revolve around him, I had a bit of a hard time getting a sense of who she was outside of her romance. I almost feel like I better know her boyfriend as a character at this point than I know her. I would also say off of that, that... Um, that could also be an explanation for why she's upset. It feels like she's, she's upset because she wanted to go to this school and he apparently didn't by the end of the chapter. Emmy wanted to go and Evan didn't, but we don't know why she wanted to be there. And I feel like understanding why she wanted to be there is also would answer your question, Aaliyah, of like, what is it that drove her to be here? And what does she get out of coming to this school? And why did she kind of why is she the driving force behind being here? And I think that is interesting. For any book, just generally speaking, like Cameron just said, one of the first things we want to know is what our character wants. And then knowing what the stakes are if they can't have it is really important. And so even knowing that about the school, like what would have happened to her if she didn't go there? Or like, what was, yeah, exactly what you just said. I had um, one other thought about some blocking. Um, there are a few moments that threw me a little bit in this where, um, like when she, she gets this letter from her boyfriend who is posing as Mr. Darcy, which is so cute and fun. And she reads the letter and I didn't realize that while she was reading the letter, she left the house and had walked far enough that she had gone down the wrong road and was 10 minutes late for school. But then she's suddenly like, oh, I'm late and goes back. So I, I missed the blocking part where she ended up actually leaving the house and walking. So that was just a little tiny thing that you might want to check on 
you guys can argue with me if you don't agree. But, I am you know. so bad at blocking that I just love that you picked up on that so quickly. That's always the thing that I find in the next draft where I'm like, cool, she's been in this room, but she didn't exit it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually a terrible blocker too. These guys will tell you exactly how many times I've had to rewrite every single fight scene I've ever written ever. Fight I didn't mean that to Caitlin. <laughs> Person's over here like, yes, yes, Caitlin, you shouldn't be the one who's saying this. Um, Maybe you're just really keyed into it because of how often you have have to think about it for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And then there was one other thing. There are a couple of instances where you have um, dialogue tags that are Imogen's thoughts, but that are attached to other people's dialogue. So it looks like she's saying things that she's very obviously not because she's also a person in the conversation. So it's just a little bit confusing. Yeah, that's a great practical note of trying to keep someone's thoughts or actions to their own text versus like... And that also helps tell, um, I love doing that because then I see when I have too many beats going on in a scene where like, I think the conversation is full, but really it's like, there's a lot of stuff that can be taken out because it's really just one person needs to say one thing. And then the next person needs to say the next thing. And there doesn't need to be someone running their hands through their hair and crossing the room and picking up a glass of water, which I will also do while speaking of blocking error. <laughs> Oh, I am editing a book right now. I'm trying to cut on length and I can't even tell you how many like dialogue tags. And I'm like, why is this even here? <laughs> it has no bearing on anything. I don't Look, know why. He needed to sneeze like... and then he needed to take a drink. And I don't know why, but it's integral to my writing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think my last thought is kind of on this mystery between Emmy and her boyfriend. So in the prologue, at the end of the prologue, um, it ends on kind of this cliffhanger where Emmy tells her boyfriend she has a plan and her boyfriend's like, oh no, what's your plan? So we're waiting to find out what the, the big capital P plan is. And then for the next few pages, we find out that the plan is already going on and we get all these interesting hints, which I really like. I was really excited to find out what this plan was. But I will say at that point, it felt like all of the characters knew about it, including Emmy and her boyfriend. So I felt like I, as the reader, was the only one who didn't know about it. And so then when on page five, we find out that the plan is having her boyfriend each day act out one of her secret crushes, which is so fun, but it was slipped so casually. Also weird. Yeah. (laughs) There are issues there. I'm really excited for this. I love it. But so it was slipped into conversation or to Emmy's kind of train of thought so casually that I wondered why it had been so important to keep it a secret from me for so long, just because it felt like it didn't matter in the end that it had been a secret. I think I'll, sorry, I mean, you can talk. No, no, I wanted to hear what you say. Go okay, ahead. Okay, well, yeah. I, I, I have a sort of um, tangential issue, I guess, with the prologue, which is I love that it tells us how Emmy is viewing her life as a movie, but I sort of felt like the prologue does a lot of the same work that the chapter does, where the prologue tells us that Emmy and Evan are dating and that Emmy is bored and that she likes writing. And that's sort of what we get from that. But we get all of that in the chapter itself. So my prescriptive advice, which please ignore if it does not fit your uh, your book, but I think if you can get like information that you can only get through that prologue, that script, that is going to make it a lot stronger of a beginning and might solve some of Aaliyah's issues with it as well. And I was just listening to to y'all talk, and I think that what's also coming up is that, like, there's a real dissonance between what Amy thinks is perfect and what is actually happening. And I, and this is more prescriptive, but I think pulling that forward 
um, would give you that central tension that and it would stay really central to one problem um, without feeling as all over the place as it could um, or as it like kind of does right now where it's like it feels like it's three problems whereas if you just have that sense of like really pulling forward that she has this idea in her head and she has this story that she tells herself and then showing in the scene that what she's telling herself and what she thinks is perfect is very different from what's happening would be really satisfying and also uh, really funny too. Like that there's like an inherent comedy to that. That's really, really great. And that's already in there. It just needs to be kind of like pulled forward and like just done with a little more intention. So we're about out of time for this portion of the podcast, but does anybody have any final thoughts before we move on? Speaking of characters, I do really like the little brother character that comes in and takes a picture of them. (laughs) It was just so weird. It was like adorable. (laughs) Just like speaking of side characters, great like immediate side character that I was like, I love this kid. He's weird. The, the characterization is just awesome of yeah. like a little kid who will sneak up in the dark and take pictures of people kissing. <laughs> Kids are so weird. I love it. All right, then. Well, thank you to this author for submitting. We really enjoyed reading and talking about your work today. And Amina, thank you for, so much for coming on the show. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun, y'all. Our next guest will be Amparo Ortiz, author of the short story comic, What Remains in the Dark and the soon-to-be-released Blaze Wrath Games. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Amparo, get us your work by October 15th. And if you'd like what you if you liked what you've heard on the podcast today, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques and early access to episodes and even participate in a writing group with Lit Service crew members. So super cool. Um, it takes a whole team of creatives to make Lit Service happen and pra- patrons help us keep going. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens, the social media wonder. But if you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and view the podcast. It helps us grow. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>